0: Asia Tech Podcast, Podcast. voice of the Asian tech ecosystem.
1: Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Tim Romero, host of the Disrupting Japan Podcast. First time together on a podcast. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Graham. It's great to be here. It's great to be talking across time zones. I'm in Singapore. You are in Tokyo, Japan. where Where are you from originally, Tim?
0: Well, I grew up in Washington D.C., um, but I've been out in Japan about twenty-five years now. Twenty-five years,
1: yeah. How awesome! What year did what? Let's work that back. Nineteen
0: ninety-three. Well, I came back and forth a few times. So I first came here in nineteen eighty-eight as, a, believe it or not, a professional musician. Mm. Uh, but my music career was was short, even by Japanese standards. <laughs> and um, doing what? What th- were you as a what? Uh, I was a singer and vocal arranger, but oh, I wow. play guitar and a bit of piano and dabble in a few other instruments as well. You came out to Japan as a musician? Yeah, I had a record contract and everything. Oh, right. You know, what kind of yeah. music? Well, it was sort of 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s pop
1: kind right. of stuff.
0: Um, if, you, if you give me the choice, I really love kind of the 1960s R&B, Benny oh, King, yeah, Ray nice. Charles, but... You know, as a pro, you're never really given the choice.
1: Right. So did you come out from Washington to Japan to find your fortune as a musician over there? Is that Was that the part of the master plan or was it just like, oh, this looks interesting. I'm going to head out here.
0: Um, as much as I ever had a master plan. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I, I'd, um, I had a record contract with a company that was part of the Capital Group at the time. Hmm. Um, and it, it quickly fell apart once I got here, but I told everyone back home I was moving to Japan to become a rock star and you, you can't like,
1: <laughs> yeah. you, know, like <laughs> you can't just go back. No, no, tail between <laughs> your legs. All right. Forget it. Yeah, you know. yeah, that
0: wouldn't happen. So, um, well, awesome. I stayed here for three years, moved to LA, did the music thing there for a right. few years and was then just done with music. Right. Well, I don't think
1: you're ever done with music. It's still in your soul, <laughs> right? Yeah, hey, but it's, yeah. You know, you came out in what, 93 Right, or the early 90s when, I mean, I came to Japan in 95, and it's interesting, I, I have a lot of conversations like yourself with entrepreneurs now, founders, and that was the thing to do back then, right? I mean, if you sort of grew up in the 80s and early 90s, Japan was the thing. It was Sony and the big names, and, you know, that was what attracted people very much in the way that a lot of people now go to Shanghai or China to find their fortunes. But back then, it was just kind of the tail end of the bubble. So, you know, people hadn't realized what had happened to Japan as a result of that. But it was still the place where you went and, you know, it was the not the Wild West in many cases, but it was where the fortune lay for, you know, a certain generation of people. Right. And that's what we did. We went to Japan, see what happened. And a lot of people did very well out of it.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, you know, at that time, you know, Japan was expected to, to take over the world. The, the value of the land beneath the, uh, Imperial palace was worth more than the state of California. It was, it was just yeah. crazy. Yeah. Good times. huh? so <laughs> anyway, we we move on, but so you've been
1: back and forth in Japan for 25 years. It's your base now disrupting Japan as a podcast is what four years around about three or four years. How is it now? Little more than four years now. Yeah. Okay. How, how so, many episodes uh, have you done?
0: Uh, I think you know. I kind of they all they all kind of run together. I think I've done about 135 of them.
1: 135 episodes. Okay. So you've been. I mean, the key here is consistency, isn't it? I mean, you're not necessarily knocking them out every week, but you're being consistent and you're there every every two
0: weeks. And right. and I had a had a period when I took the show commercial where I did it every single week. Hmm. Um. But now I'm back to every other week. Right.
1: Where did that start? Where did the conversation start or the idea originate from where? Like, I'm gonna start a podcast.
0: You know, I, I never had any idea it was gonna blow up to be as big as it has. Um, so, I mean, I, I've i started a number of startups here in Japan and the whole idea of the show was me just sitting down with with some of my friends who'd also started companies and right. and talking about, Um, not, not necessarily their particular company, but what it's like to be an innovator in a culture that prizes conformity and, and Mm -hmm. you know, how they managed to convince their wives to let them leave some company and start their crazy startup of theirs. And, um, I, I, never imagined it would have more than a handful of listeners, but it, it just has been growing steadily you know month after month and we're up to about 5000 listeners mm. uh, around the world now.
1: Well, I want to dive into the the data as well because you you published an article recently which we'll we we'll talk about which is about being Japan's first professional podcast. So, obviously a key part of that is understanding the model, advertising and so on. You mentioned something Tim which I, I find really fascinating. That story of that startup founder who's having to speak to his wife about, you know, why He's going to go and start a startup in Japan where he could stay forever in Mitsubishi or some trading company until, yeah. you know, retirement and beyond. That That's a really human story, isn't it? And it's so, I find that such relevant story to Japan because it's about leaving a comfort zone and, you know, having those conversations. It, you know, I know we're in the business of tech and startups and so on, but ultimately these are
0: all human stories, right? It absolutely is. And and I think what what I find amazing, though, is just in the, you know, little more than four years since I started doing the show, the huge cultural shift that's happened. So when I first started the show, like everyone had a, an origin story. Uh, of how they had to talk their wives or their wives' parents into letting them do it. Or um, one founder was homeless when he first started his company. Uh, Another founder was telling me, you know, he had to pawn his wife's jewelry to keep his company. Yeah, yeah. And and he was like, Tim, Tim, there are some things you should never do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Awesome. But but things have changed. And now I very rarely even ask the question Mm. because the answer tends to be, well i had investors willing to give me money and uh friends who wanted to start the company with me so why not mm. which is which is great that's that's great for japanese society but it means uh you know you have to look elsewhere for the human story well they're still there aren't they
1: but i think like what you're doing and what i really respect about your podcast is that i really believe change comes from storytelling so when young kids grow up they look to the stories, the role models of success out there. And, you know, in many ways, Japan has had that story of the salaryman, right, which was the the model of success. And that's what projected Japan into the
0: bubble and beyond, right? Yeah. And, And And even on the entrepreneurial side, I mean, Japan, it has always been kind of this great man image of entrepreneurship. And one of the hardest things for, for example, college age uh, students who were mm. thinking of being a founder, when they look at someone like Mikitani or, or Son, yeah. the, the gap is too big. You know, they just can't imagine themselves doing that. But you know, the reality is that most entrepreneurs are, you know, a few years older than they are mm. and just doing a few things differently. And th- it's not that hard to grasp.
1: Yeah. And in fact,
0: I've, I've had four, Different Japanese startup founders tell me that the interviews on the show, uh, listening to the other founders, is what gave them kind of the guts to start their own startup. Hmm. And I, that's uh, that's awesome. I mean, I
1: love that. That's job done, really, isn't it? In terms yeah, of, yeah. It's it's an interesting point about like Miki Tani or you know the the big celebrities of the startup world, the entrepreneurial world in in Japan. Masayoshi-san and people like that for example like you say they're almost unreachable they're almost in a way so far ahead so unlike the listener that if they were to hear that story it doesn't necessarily inspire them to say oh I can do this yet yeah. that's why I think podcasting is a great platform because you you sort of democratize that in a way especially in Japan is that you democratize that so that everybody has a voice such so that even the guy who might not be the billion-dollar startup, but hey, look at what he's done. He's done something amazing with his life. He's just a few steps down the road from the listener, right? And that's what exactly. inspires me, right? That's what I think it, we need to do with podcasting.
0: Yeah, and it is a wonderfully intimate medium. I mean, you are you are literally whispering in people's ears. Mm. Yeah, and there's uh, you know one of you know. One of my favorite shows, I mean, it's its kind of like asking someone what their favorite children, child is, they're, mm-hmm. they're all my favorites, but um, one of the shows I really liked was I had a chance to interview someone whose startup had just failed, and I got him at just the right time. I mean, it had been about a month since it, it imploded, so he'd had time to process, but everything was still real. And he talked about, you know, how he had to hide it from his employees. I mean, not not lie to them, but, you know, mm. to keep a strong face and the conversations he had with his investors and how hard it was for him to find a job in Japan after his company failed. Um, so some of the some of the best stories aren't the, mm. you know, the big successes. Who, who was that one, Tim? Um, that was, God, I can't remember. Was
1: that Japanese? That's really embarrassing. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, oh, almost all
0: my guests are Japanese. Well, so that uh, uh, that
1: again, that's quite rare, isn't it? You get Japanese guests on. Firstly, that's tough already. So you know, but also getting them to talk about their failures. I mean, you know, if you've got a Silicon Valley, it's like, yeah, what well, on? Pat on the back. Your failure. You've done well. You've earned your wings, right?
0: But in Japan, well, you know, it's very different. It, it's funny. I, I think it's the two extremes. So I, I really think the the San Francisco, the fail fast fail forward it's it, it's a lot of macho bullshit. I mean, uh, people don't really believe that. Uh, I, I've been to uh, I went to an event called a failcon where <laughs> okay. the idea was yeah. you know people come up and tell their failure stories. It was a great event. Everyone had a great time, including me. But uh, one of the person's failures involved selling his company for $200 million. Uh, Another failure was, you know, the company imploded nine months after he left. And it's like, you know, those aren't really failures.
1: Those are humble brags. Yeah. disguised as failures, right?
0: Okay. You know, if, if failure doesn't hurt. Yeah. If it doesn't totally suck, you weren't really committed to it.
1: Yeah. Failure means sitting in front of your wife and said, do you remember our wedding ring that we pawned? <laughs> you Yeah. Know, <laughs> it ain't coming back. <laughs> That's, that hurts, right? I've got to explain that now to my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, et cetera, et cetera. That's real failure where you've actually had to suffer a loss, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Japan definitely it's gotten better, but I think there's a long way to go before people You know, I am not a believer of celebrating failure, but I'm a big believer in learning from it accepting Mm. it and Moving on and I I think Japan now uh, it's getting a little bit better at the larger companies. It's really difficult but there's enough of a startup ecosystem now and Programmers and creatives are in big enough demand that people get second chances and that and that part of the culture is changing here, and that's great to see. Absolutely,
1: you, you say, Tim, that podcasting is a very intimate medium. How does that work in Japan? I mean, we've you, you lived in Japan for many years. I've lived in Japan. Um, we're all aware mainly the stereotypes people have about Japanese people and communication, right? So, how has it been in the podcasting medium? Because you could argue, for example, that Japanese aren't natural storytellers. Yeah, it's very different when you put a karaoke mic and a few beers in their hand. but in the podcasting
0: well, it, scenario, how does that work? Well, actually beers beers come into play in, in quite a few of my podcasts. <laughs> um, there you go. But, but a lot of it is just um, just having a conversation and you know'll I'll interview someone for maybe an hour and a half and then edit that down to 30 minutes of quality podcast. So, it's not live, it's heavily edited, my guests know that if they say something stupid, they can say, wait, wait, stop, let me, let me say that again, mm. and they do. Uh, or if they need to stop and ask me how to say something in English, and I can, exp- you know, they can explain it in Japanese, and I'll say, I'll say it this way, and mm. um, it, it's just just talking. Mm. Um, I, I did try, a, a few things I tried that backfired on me. So. Originally, I, I tried to do recordings in studios and that just didn't work uh, My guests couldn't relax. Hmm. I, I didn't get a single usable episode out of it um, I've tried recording over over Skype and it, it doesn't work. It's hard to really get people to open up over Skype hmm. uh, and in the end I ended up using these little, you know lavalier uh, the the tiny uh, lapel mics where the sound quality is not as as high but after a minute people totally forget they're wearing them Hmm. and they'll talk to you like a, like a normal human being. And I, I think that helps a lot. Yeah. The key
1: here is, is finding a medium that works for you, isn't it? Because there are different types of podcasts, different setups, different environments that you can do it in. You've got to, you've got to experiment like you have done, right? Finding different ways of doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm here in a studio. We're doing this via Skype. I'm happy sitting in a studio, but that works for me and obviously, you know, for you, the, the face-to-face with the lavalier mics works
0: better, right? I mean, that's fine. It's just a different style, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean the studio works just fine for me as a guest as well. But I, I think it's, it, it's yeah, different styles. It has to suit um, the the character and the personality of the mm-hmm. host and the the character of the show. And that, that's the wonderful thing about this medium is that some of the, the best podcasting out there – are these really, really deep dives into mm. tiny niches and um there there's no right way to do it. Yeah. I want to talk to
1: you about that as well, but I'm gonna park that, come to it, because that, you know, I want to find out what kind of podcasts inspire you in terms of, you know, what do you aspire to be like or who who sort of influenced you in the podcasting? Oh. But I I guess the question I want to ask is about your role as a host, because you've made sort of some interesting observations already you know it's a conversation it's mm. it, you know you're having an intimate chat almost with a friend and as a listener i'm maybe sitting at that table and, and hearing that or i'm taking part in it right rather than being a hard interview or a pr interview w- what do you see your role as a host in all of this
0: um i i think it's my job to to get the, the the best, most compelling story out of my guest. And I do a lot of prep work before going in. So I, I sort of know the story I want them to tell.
1: Mm.
0: And um, I I set it up to let them them tell it. And sometimes I get exactly the story I was expecting. Sometimes I get something completely different. Um but it, it it's my job to give them a space and make them comfortable enough to to open up and I I try to ask some questions that I try to figure out what it is that they want to talk about that nobody asks them about Mm. and you you know that when you hit it because suddenly you get this amazing amount of information that you know this person has clearly thought very deeply about and then it's just just magical you can just let the conversation happen. Mm.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of scenes setting in there, isn't it? You've done your research. You've shown a bit of respect there. They feel comfortable with you. They know that you're not a journalist. You're not trying to catch them out. They know that for you, you can edit it out if anything goes wrong. But you're creating a platform to get into, you know, I suppose that they're kind of opening a door for you. And you just got to push a little bit at the door into their world. Because otherwise, you know, if I go to a conference I can hear all the PR spiel. I can go to the website. I can look at the LinkedIn page. But why I want to listen to Disrupting Japan is because you're going to give me something which I can't get anywhere else, and that's quite insightful. And how do you do that? I mean, what, what sort of? I mean, you sort of you mentioned Tim about a story
0: that you want them to tell. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, it's it's different for every guest. I mean, sometimes it's it's very obvious. You know, I, I know going in that this is going to be a good story. Um, with some people, particularly the, the better known ones, um, kind of the post IPO CEOs who are running large organization, it, it's harder to get them off script. So usually what I do is I just let them kind of empty their PR tanks right at the top and just edit that out. <laughs> so let them get all the talking points out of the way and then focus on something that I think they want to talk about.
1: Hmm.
0: And it's like I say, it's it's different for everyone. Um, in some cases it was talking about, there was uh, one company who made sort of a musical shoe and hmm. we spent a long time talking about the, the, the history of music and what is and is not considered a musical instrument and why. And um, it, it's just, it's, you're, you get it. It's a wonderful opportunity mm. because I have a chance to talk to these incredibly intelligent, creative people. And, you know, if I can figure out how to make them comfortable enough to to talk about what they really want to, it's, it's, it's great. It's amazing. I can just sit back and, and, you know, let it, let it flow. Yeah. I love that. I was talking
1: to, uh, Gregory Prudhomme, who, who's, uh, based in shanghai he runs a the next step the backstage podcast which is all about you know entrepreneurs moving to shanghai it's done in french so it's for a very specific audience but the french community in shanghai i think is one of the biggest expat communities there right and what what we were talking about is a similar situation where he, he was talking about a guest that came on his show who obviously there was the pr spiel to get out the way but what really interested the guest and it was completely off topic was he had a, a hobby a passion for climbing up those really tall buildings in shanghai and taking photographs at sunsets and so on and that's he was really into that you know and he would do that all the time and get you know that would be his thing you know where's this guy gone or oh, he's, he's climbed up one of these tall towers and he's taking photographs right and you know we were, i was chatting about that with gregory and it was all about you know when the guest starts talking about this, is that this is something really interesting, something really meaningful for them? You know, what do you do? Because I guess aspiring podcast hosts listen to this and said, Oh, you know, do I go down this rabbit hole? Because this sounds really interesting. Or are the, the audience interested in this? Should I indulge <laughs> this? How do you deal with
0: that? Uh, yeah, that is. It, it's so for me, I sort of know the story arc. That I want the the conversation to have, and a lot of it is if the guest departs from that, um, knowing how long to let him go and when to reel him back onto topic. And since since I edit heavily, I can let them go, and if it doesn't lead anywhere productive, I can just edit out you know mm. the tangents uh, later. But a lot of times we can have really deep discussions about. Um, I mean things like marketing strategy or, or expansion strategy, and um, most of the guests welcome being challenged. You know, to say, "Well, wait a minute, this that strategy normally doesn't work, and mm. it didn't work for this company. What are you guys doing different?" And um, yeah, it, it can be really, really fruitful. Mm, yeah. But there's no I, there's no clear there, there's no clear checklist for it. So I i it's this sort of tension between keeping them on topic but not being so rigorous that you you don't allow interesting tangents to happen. Yeah. That's just
1: a PR interview, right? Otherwise, isn't it? And we can get all that from the website. But you Yeah, allowed-
0: quite frankly, I've I've had uh, I think three interviews that I, I didn't broadcast that mm-hmm. I just couldn't use. And in in well, in one case it was a technical difficulty, but in two cases I just I couldn't get them off script, and I, I couldn't get anything I thought was really compelling. So I just didn't put the show out. Why does that happen? Are they
1: surrounded by marcoms people, or are they just so heavily trained, or are they scared to open up?
0: I I don't know. I I, I think it might be a, any number of those reasons. I, I kind of I, I've gotten better at it. A lot of it mm. is my own skill. Um, so earlier on, I, I tended to um, have more of those kind of interviews hmm. and as I've gotten more experience, I've gotten better at just making people comfortable enough to open up and and talk
1: hmm.
0: and the beer helps of course. and the beer really does help yeah in fact, there's been a couple of these interviews, two in particular where the guests like, uh, it's like, well, I've got some more beer. Let's let's open a bottle of wine and yeah. it started sliding down a hill near the end of it. The- <laughs> well, you can edit as you
1: say in, in the post production. I, I do a show. <laughs> one of the sh- I have an experimental show which goes out once a month, inspired by Joe Rogan, which is uh, three hours in terms of format, and it's wow. not not serious. But I get four entrepreneurs in a room in a studio, and they all bring their beer and alcohol and whiskey, and we just talk about entrepreneurship and i i thought doing that after the first one where people got quite drunk um, but not so drunk that they couldn't communicate i thought waking up the next morning thought oh my god this is the worst thing i've ever did it went out live cringe but everybody that did it is like i love doing that i want to come back and do it again so you know to the point about any podcasters out there or people thinking about the format is that don't be afraid, you know, you're creating a conversation. It's quite intimate and, you know, to create those environments, you don't have to have beer, but you don't have to have the very slick PR high production environment either. Right. And be, you know, be
0: experimental in the format as well. Yeah. And and absolutely. One of the things that surprised me most was that um, during the interview, I mean, I'm, I'm having a conversation, so I'm not really, Listening to I mean, I'm listening to my guest. I'm not trying I'm not listening to like the flow or I'm not I don't have an editors ears at that point, but you leave with a feeling of okay That was a good interview. That wasn't Mm. that great of an interview and then during the production when I'm Editing it all down. I've got this sense of like wow This is really a strong show or this is a weak show and then you put it out and you get the listeners reaction and it quickly became apparent there was absolutely no correlation between what shows I thought were great and brilliant and deep and which shows my listeners oh, really? just love. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I've given up even trying to guess. <laughs> I mean... All right. Because I was going to
1: ask you what makes a good show, but obviously, you know, we're none the wiser on that.
0: Well, I, I think... It, it, the the key is you just you put together the best show you ca- possibly can every time mm. and you'll you know if your listeners agree they'll let you know
1: right okay that's the only way to do it well let's yeah. move into the economic side of things and, and being a professional podcaster podcast right. host as well um, now for a lot of people podcasting is a side hustle um A lot of people ask me, like, how do you monetize podcasts and so on? It's a question on top of people's minds. There are many different ways to do it. But there are only really a few people outside of Asia, sorry, outside of the U.S. who have really cracked this. You seem to be doing, you know, making a lot of progress here. And I'm reading your article now, which is published on LinkedIn, and I recommend it. To anybody listening to this podcast, we'll put the link in the show notes as well. What I learned as Japan's first professional podcaster, and I don't necessarily think it's just Japan, but in Asia in general. I mean, in the US, it's a lot more established. They're a few years ahead, but here in Asia, we're sort of playing catch up. So tell us why you wrote this article first.
0: Well, it, to be honest, I've been working on the article for, I mean, it's been uh, uh, bubbling around in the back of my head for almost a year now. So I, I had one of my, uh, what I hoped was going to be startup number five blow up on me. And, uh, at that point disrupting Japan had about 3,500 listeners and a bunch of my, uh, well, a couple of my friends said, Hey, well, why don't you try making a run of it? Why don't you try becoming a, a pro and selling ads? And I had nothing better going on at the time. So I, I did. And the, the economics for a niche show um, don't work out well at all. So uh, the CPM rate, your your what you can charge advertisers in the U.S. The going rate seems to be about twenty twenty five dollars per thousand listeners. Hmm. And for a niche show, that's just not going to work. Um, so what what I did, and my advice to to anyone who wants to really monetize, is you have to kind of define your own monopoly. Um, you, you have to figure out, well, I mean, what I did is I just sort of brainstormed what kind of companies desperately wanted to reach my, my listeners. And over the course of a week, I came up with a list of, you know, 50 to hundred companies. Um, then I went around making PowerPoint presentations and pitching them directly. And a lot of it was, you know, what is a podcast? Well, here's why it's great. And You know, I was charging over one hundred and seventy dollars CPM, but I I never negotiated in terms of of CPM. Hmm. Um, It was this total sponsorship package and it was an audience that my uh, sponsors couldn't reach any other way. Um, But it's it takes a lot of work. And I I spent I was spending about 70 percent of my time doing advertising sales and 30 percent of my time actually podcasting. But that, that's kind of the ratio you've got to expect if you want to, you know, make those numbers. And I, I was making a little over $8,000 a month podcasting. All right. So let's
1: back up here because this is fascinating. You went out, hustled with your PowerPoint slides, pitched people mm. on the idea of podcasting. Some people probably hadn't a clue what you were talking about, but they knew that they wanted to reach your audience. Um, you say that you got to that 8,000 a month in terms of ad sales. I mean, that's that's commendable. That is a great job to go out and hustle that from zero. Um, yeah. And to me, it's like, when I talk, I mean, I don't have advertising or sponsors. My, my business model is different. I make it from the, the the side services, right? But for a lot of people, advertising and sponsorship is a natural step in media for, for, for podcasting, but their approach, probably quite passive. You took a very proactive approach on that. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that? How was that actually for you? I mean, did you have to go and just face a lot of rejection? Was it a lot of educating the market? Were people asking the right questions? How did you sort
0: of deal with all of that? Well, lots of rejection, lots of educating the market. Um, I I guess I'm used to that. I mean, I've been starting companies forever, so that was not daunting to me. Um, But it really is a matter of, of what you have to offer. And the most important thing is, is nobody really wants to buy ads on your show. That's not what they're paying for. Mm -hmm. Um, They're paying for a way to reach a, a way to sincerely deliver a message to a specific audience. And if you can convince them that, you are the only way or the most effective way that they can deliver that sincere message and you're willing to spend the time on, on creating the ad with them. And, uh, I did live appearances at my sponsor's events. Um, then people will happily pay for it. Hmm. That is interesting. I, I love the idea of like
1: throwing in live appearances there as well. Cause you know, you're creating this whole package rather than just selling a bit of real estate on your podcast. Right. And it's yeah. a bit of creative approach that I haven't heard anybody do this. So I want to dive a little bit deeper if we can. I mean, absolutely. Did you consider that a success getting it to 8,000 a month? Was that successful for you? I don't know
0: what your expectations were. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was I was delighted at that. Um, in in fact, my, the next step I took after that, because I mean, the audience is uh, it, I mean, innovation and in startups in Japan is something that. I And most disrupting Japan listeners feel really passionate about but let's face it. That's a pretty niche topic this is never going to be on the iTunes top 10 Mm. so I I couldn't really grow revenues anymore that way Um, So I started expanding I started selling advertising on other people's shows uh, in Japan other podcasts and It was really interesting is I could only get about um, 40 to 45 dollars CPM rate for the other shows I was selling hmm. and it, it wasn't I mean and they were great shows but there, there's You lose the flexibility and the credibility when you have someone else selling for you hmm. So I, I strongly recommend, you know getting out there hustling um, And just you know, you're not selling CPMs. You're selling something much more important You're you're selling a chance to really build a brand,
1: right? So does then that work? Because I note in your your article in the beginning, the first month, you got like 42 downloads.
0: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, things have moved on. I thought on, that so was awesome. Yeah. I was so happy.
1: Well, good for you. And I, I think a vast majority of podcasts don't even get to that, right? So <laughs> what what point does this make sense? If I'm starting out on the podcasting journey and I'm starting to get my metrics back, is there a point which you'd say, okay, look, wait till you get this much, then go out and have that conversation? Or should you have that conversation with people now, say, hey, look, I've only got 42 downloads, but it's going to go up, and I want to get you on board and be part of this journey with me? You, well, how do you sort of pitch that when
0: you're just starting out? Um, I, I, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty good salesman, but I think I would have trouble selling at 42 downloads. Right. Um, so I, I don't know if there's a minimum traction, but if you have a few hundred listeners um, I, I think you could get some, some sponsorship because remember, you're not, you're not selling ad space on the podcast. Um, but with like 300 listeners, you know, if you found someone who really wanted to reach those people, if your sponsorship package was, um, somehow bringing those people to that venue, I mean, it, it is possible. Mm. But it really depends on on um, what kind of package you can put together. I, I, I think if you've got a thousand listeners, then you've got um, then you've got something you can you can sell to advertisers. But but the key is how engaged the listeners are. Mm. So uh, one of the things that really helped sell Disrupting Japan to sponsors was uh, we do a, a live event a live podcast every year. And um, when I was selling the ads the previous year, we had about 150 people come out, pay a $20 cover charge to have a few drinks and watch a live podcast and, and just talk with each other. And that engagement and that community was, I think, what validated the the show in the sponsor's eyes.
1: Mm. You mentioned you're not selling ad space on a podcast. And I guess leading up to this community part. Just let me understand that a little bit, because that's, I think, what a lot of people think they're doing. Well, what's, yeah. the, what's the mistake they're making there?
0: Um, so if you think you're selling ad space and, and you can sell ad space, there are direct response uh, companies who will pay for, for, you know, pay by the ear, basically. If you can bring them 5,000 listeners, they'll pay you 20 bucks for Well, they'll pay $20 for every listener you can bring them. But that's a commodity. And, but the, the sponsors you want aren't playing that game. Uh, the sponsors you want are someone that has, um, they're trying to build a brand. They're trying to reach the people that you talk to and you have credibility with Hmm. and that, that they, you know, that they're a legitimate company that you believe in, that you want to introduce to your listeners and a lot of times it's not just the podcast. Like I said, I had a lot of uh, a lot of luck with live events. Um, other podcasters might try, you know, webinars or something if they're not local. Um, but it, it's not the the podcast ad. That's not what they want. They they want the end result. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, a lot of my sponsors, I had a lot of luck with recruiting companies of various forms. I, I mean, I had to be careful. There was never uh, two direct competitors that sponsored the show. But, you know, a recruiting firm might make $20,000 on a single placement. Mm. So if they felt confident that every month they were sourcing three or four placements through Disrupting Japan, they were delighted to be to pay pay my rates, even if they were six, seven times the market average.
1: Yeah, there you go. I mean, the way you put it, the whole package is what's important here. And the podcast just happens to be a focal point for the community you're building, right? Rather than the actual ad space you're selling. You know, you have the podcast, you have the live events, um, you know, and there are many options out there, like you said, like webinars for certain people as well. And sure. whatever kind of social media that they run. So do, in terms of like, for example, like with your recruiters, do you, did because uh, one thing people complain about it the hope maybe more from the host side rather than the listener side is that, you know, I don't want to put ads inside my podcast. You know, this podcast is brought to you by et cetera. I mean, do you do that? I mean, do you are you comfortable with it or do you sort of position it a different way?
0: Well, you know, disrupting Japan's a business podcast, so I didn't expect any any negative feelings about, you know, making it commercial. And I I received nothing but positive feedback from my listeners. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, people would comment that, okay, Tim, that, that, that ad seemed a little salesy or, you know, kind of corny or something like that. But, uh, no, I don't think anyone reacted negatively to the fact that I was, uh, commercializing it. Mm. I think most of the listeners were very supportive of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree with you.
1: And of course, some people may complain, but at the end of the day, If it's entrepreneurs listening to your podcast, they they (laughs) know the score, right? You know that's how it is. So I think a lot of
0: them were like, "Hey Tim, what took you so long?" You know,
1: (laughs) absolutely. Okay, well that's cool. Let's um talk about what you've learned in this process. Then, so you know, you've done. Go correct me again. It's about one hundred and thirty, was it? How many have you done? I think I'm up to about one hundred and thirty-five now. One hundred and thirty-five podcasts, right? So you've you've managed to monetize. You know how to monetize the podcast now. You've kind of hit your form. You you're happy with the vibe of the podcast. You've built a community. Um, there's no mystery in making this work financially, or you know, understanding whether or not it can become an ongoing concern. So you've cracked that. You've built a name for yourself. Um, and pretty much the the leading podcast in Japan and one of the leading podcasts in Asia as well. So that's all well and good. I want to know what you've kind of learned in that process. And also, let's bring that around to where it goes in the future as well. So business-wise, we've talked about the business model and so on. That's fine. But as an individual, Tim, what have you learned by being a podcast host and sitting with these people 135 episodes?
0: I mean, it, it, it really has changed me. Um, I've, I, I, I listen a lot more than I talk now. Um, I've, when I, when I'm at parties and talking to people, I I find I enjoy these parties a lot more, um, uh, I'll click into sort of interview mode and I'll be like drawing people's life story out of them mm. five minutes after I meet them. And it's just it's it's fun. I mean, for me and them, people love to talk about, I mean, all kinds of things. Um, so it, it's on a personal level. I mean, it, it definitely has given me it, it's sort of changed the way I look at people and the way I interact with people on a on a business level. Um, I mean, all, all the things that people say about expanding your network and building a personal brand that that's all very true. Um, and the podcast has been fantastic that way, Mm. but, but more so is I've made a lot of genuine friends. Um, if you have, you know, this kind of meaningful conversation with someone, like I, I mentioned before, like, you, you know, when you, when you've hit that, that thing that this person really wants to talk about and you make friends a lot of the a lot of my guests i'll still go out and have a beer with and Mm. and just talk about random things um it's it's a wonderful wonderful thing to do um the only downside is it takes far far more time than you you think it's going to yeah
1: exactly (laughs) but that is the cost of it all it has to take time if it was too easy then everybody would be doing it and I, i like the point you make about making the connection, because I'm, I'm sure there there are people that you've interviewed that maybe you've known for some time, and maybe you see them off and on in the business context or at events and so on, yet you would sit with them. And I had one of these the other day, a friend of mine, a friend, I say, you know, he came in the studio, I've known him for a while, uh, and he Gustavo is his name, and he's, he's a podcast host on the Blockchain Asia show. We know each other, we know what we're up to and so on. But we never sort of go deep with that conversation. Yet, when I sat with him and we had a podcast conversation together, we went into areas that were quite deep. And I felt like in that hour, that 45 minutes that I sat with Gustavo, I learned a lot about him, that I could have been friends with him for 20 years and never got to that space. So that's sort of like the magic of podcasting as well, is that, you know, there is almost like, a permission to talk about things which that people not normally talk about and it creates a, quite a strong connection doesn't it you know yeah, i feel like yeah. when i had a conversation i walk away like i really know that person and I, hopefully they know me a little bit better as well so yeah. uh, that's often something people don't think about when they're going and, to podcasting
0: and i and i think to be a a really good host you need to appreciate that opportunity you have and and prepare for it and and really you know, work to create an environment where someone can open up and does open up.
1: Mm, Yeah. And that also comes with a bit of confidence though, no? In that sense that you, you know, you're a bit more relaxed, I guess, of 135 that, okay, I'll let the guest talk a little bit more now and just sort of, you know, encourage them to tell that story rather than, no, just Tim, shut up. I've got five questions I want to ask you. Like, you know, got to get to number five, which is kind of like, we all start there, don't we? Like we're a bit nervous.
0: That's how we do it. Well, and, and you, you have to learn to be kind of flexible too, because some guests are really, um, hesitant to open up and you have to give them really permission and encouragement to, to do so. Mm. And some guests, you know, they're, 100% hundred percent in your face, they're going to tell the story you want, and you've got to be aggressive and kind of derail that. Hmm. Um, Absolutely, but it's 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 fun. It's something I, you know, it, it's something I'm still trying to improve on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Were, were you also like? A, um, I know you're a musician, but did you see yourself as extroverted? Because there's often oh, God, no. no?
0: I, I'm I'm an introvert by nature, <laughs> and I've I've learned to like adapt in an extroverted world. Right. So I mean. I do a lot of sales because I mean, if you're if you start companies, you're you're basically doing sales. So I mean, I can work a room, I can do that, but it's exhausting for me, and I need to like go somewhere afterwards and like recuperate. Mm. Um, but no, I'm I'm naturally an introvert. I wonder if a lot of podcast hosts are. I mean, podcast
1: hosts are. I mean, certainly for myself, I'm. I mean, I love public speaking. I love sitting in a studio podcasting behind a mic, but I totally cringe and curl up if I have to speak to two people in a room, you know, and that's where I feel really uncomfortable. But in this situation, I feel completely relaxed. I can talk to like somebody like yourself, but, you know, if we were like just sitting in a business context, handing out cards, for me, it would be a lot more work a lot more difficult for me to make a connection in that context so i wonder if that you know podcasting is a great platform for people who naturally aren't good in the free flow context
0: yeah that's a really interesting point um you know i think you're right it might just be this kind of uh social permission to to ask like these these deep difficult questions and and you know it's this social role of interviewer and interviewee that that suddenly we click into Mm. that, you know, it is more comfortable than uh, just walking up to someone, some stranger or asking someone these, these exact same questions over lunch. Mm. So yeah, maybe it's sort of a, a social permission that, that lets us introverts, um, you know, do this kind of
1: thing. Yeah, out the cage, right. Yeah, well, if we have listeners who have thoughts on that, we'd love to hear that. We'll, we'll round up at the end with the, how they can make contact and so on. W- where do we go from here with disrupting Japan? You know, you, you said, for example, it's something that you're still learning, t- you're trying to improve. We're all improving as podcast hosts and, you know, connecting with people and so on. What would you like to do next? Do you see sort of big challenges? or sort of more of the same? Or do, would you like to take it in new directions?
0: Well, right now I'm not sure. So, um, actually to wrap up the, the story we were telling before is I actually stopped taking ads on disrupting Japan. Mm. Um, and, and actually that part was the, the thing a lot of my listeners got a little upset with me about, uh, because I, I accepted a job that paid a whole lot more than podcasting did. (laughs) And then I just, yeah, you know, I, I let my current advertisers' contracts, you know, expire and drop back down to doing a, a show every other week. And now it's it's just a hobby, and I, I for the moment I prefer that.
1: Mm. But you can scale it up and scale it down, right, without putting it to bed.
0: Oh, absolutely! I, I can't imagine ever stopping this. It's it's just too much fun. Really? Uh, you know, I I get to have the most amazing conversations.
1: But if there ever came the opportunity where somebody said, look, you could do this full time, get paid more than your current job, but you've got to do the hustling a bit harder. Would you take that? Or do you like to have it as a hobby?
0: I might, I was uh, in negotiation with one of uh, Japan's uh, major media companies about making disrupting Japan an official podcast um, and radio show for them. Uh, so I'm obviously, that didn't work out for any number, for quite a number of reasons, but I'm, I'm open to anything. Mm.
1: That's a great way to be. Well, it's awesome. I mean, you've done 135. Hopefully, we'll see another 135, at least, as you continue the journey on disrupting Japan. And I, I would like to also see more names come through in Japan. Like, you've obviously started something, and people look to you. They'll say, I want to do that. You know, I want to do like Tim and even, for example, Japanese local talent want to start their own podcast, whether in Japanese or English. You know, do you see a grassroots movement of people wanting to do that in Japan? Because I guess it's like Singapore where people aren't naturally fond of getting up and standing in front of a mic. Right. So that's the challenge.
0: Yeah. The podcasting in Japan is a bit of a it's an interesting space right now. So, and and I've talked to the people who run Apple podcasts, both, you know, globally and APAC about, you know, what can be done to encourage independent podcasting in Japan. And part of the problem is, is right now the media companies, most of the popular podcasts are put out by the major media companies. And I think one of the big things that led to the uh, creative boom and interest in podcasting in America early on was some of the the radio jocks these mm. these guys with years of radio experience said yeah well let me let me just try this podcasting thing and um they had the experience to make and they made like really good shows and it attracted a following but in Japan mm. the media companies keep very very tight control mm. over the talent so they they can't do a side business they they can't do a side show they're just not permitted to and so there, there's this clear gap between the, the media shows, which are basically radio. Mm. And then there, there are a lot of independent podcasters in Japan, uh, both in Japanese and a surprising number in English as well. But it, it's much smaller than we see in the U.S. Mm. And, and I think it's um, there just hasn't really been a, a breakout podcast show in, in Japan yet.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I I guess you're talking about where it came from in the US, people like, I guess, you know, Leo Laporte and, you know, like Adam Curry, for example, who came from the MTV and the, the radio world, who brought that across. And they had the skill and the training, but they just wanted to have that raw format, which was uncontrolled by you know, big media in a way, right? Where they could do what they wanted to do without having to run it through the permission of the committee and so on. That that's what's kind of needed, isn't it, to kickstart that thing.
0: And, exactly. So yeah. you, you had all these really talented, experienced people who suddenly said, wait, I now have complete creative control. Yeah. And they produced amazing content. Yeah. And so in Japan, I think the the major the people with that depth of experience aren't allowed to have creative control Mm. and the people with you know a lot of creativity are still like me learning on the technical side Mm. Mm. yeah but you're growing and you've done a great job
1: and you know it takes time and a bit of faith and maybe you know, a, f- a bit of foolish, foolish creativity as well. But it's like, you know, the Steve Jobs, stay creative, you know, stay hungry, stay curious. Right. You know, I think you have to have to have some kind of like, I don't know, a thick skin to start a podcast and do it for yourself. And, you know, that do it for the, the business development opportunity of sitting with people and creating those conversations. Do it for the introspection as well. And if you get listeners, That's a bonus. The listeners will come. You know, if you focus on creating great content, great conversations and not worry about what the critics say, then, you know, eventually you'll build a tribe of people like you've done. Right. And eventually that will be worth something monetarily. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Graham.
0: And I think that, um, you know, whatever show you're making, if it's something that that you think is the best show you can possibly make you will attract people who are are interested in that. And that might be a couple dozen people. It might be hundreds of thousands or millions of people.
1: Yeah. Well, a couple of dozen, you know, that was your first month, right? So we all start somewhere. Don't give up yet. Tim, it's been a real pleasure. I've really uh, enjoyed talking to you. And, you know, it's our first conversation together. And, you know, I feel like I've learned quite a bit as well. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons that i can take away here let's put a shout out to disrupting japan where can people find you now
0: well the easiest place of course you can find me on on itunes or facebook or you can come to disrupting japan.com and check out the site awesome
1: tim romero everybody the host of disrupting japan tim thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your journey and your insights into the world of professional podcasting And we'd love to do an update at some point, six months, 12 months in the future and see where we are. I look forward to
0: it. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.